So as Beth said, this is All Saints Sunday. This is a time that's been put in the calendar of the church by the saints that have gone before us to remind ourselves as we were just singing that we are not in this alone and that they are not really dead. They're not dead. He who liveth and believeth in me, said Jesus, though he die, yet shall they. So they live in some other realm. They live somehow in a way that we can't communicate with them body to body anymore. But we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses with the Trinity right at the core as the sustaining and enlivening and animating power of this great cloud of witnesses, both with bodies and those who await the resurrection and a new body. And so this is a Sunday where we set aside to celebrate the work of God in millions and millions and millions, perhaps billions of regular people just like us. And it was a lovely irony that this Friday, uh, Debbie and I um, got to attend the funeral of a very dear old family friend, uh, died as a, you know, just a stereotypical 87-year-old saint. His name was Hal Baggett, Harold Eugene Baggett. Nobody's ever heard of Hal Baggett. He was a missile engineer at one of the companies here in Southern California, but you know, just had a regular you know, nine to five job as an engineer in aerospace. But I grew up in First United Methodist Church in Santa Ana, California, you know, downtown Santa Ana there. And as a totally irreverent, want nothing to do with God, he was my first Sunday school teacher. And they were close family friends. And that man, with quiet, humble, tenacious love, just was sort of like a father figure. He didn't seem bothered by my irreverence, though I'm sure he worked really hard on Sunday school lessons. And I just sat there in my irreverence thinking, this is dopey, this is stupid, you know, where can I smoke some dope, you know? And he just hung in there. I, I can remember I called or texted Beth after the service and I said, it just makes me want to get in all of our Sunday school teachers and put them right here and go, these people matter. The, the, the ladies and guys who are out there serving our kids right now from the babies to the toddlers all the way up through the youth, like it matters, these are saints. And so All Saints Day is a, a kind of an annual call for us to both live as saints and to remind us of the hope um, that there is after what we call this life as we all grow together in Christ-like virtue. So Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. And so they were both calling the people to rebuild the temple. So just to have the history in your mind quickly, you know, 70 years of judgment and exile, they're now back in the land and that's a good thing, but they're still living in what we would call kind of secular times. They're still being ruled by Persia. And so Zechariah is trying to get them to do the thing that God's calling them to do, to, and we might say today, become saints. That is to say, become the set-aside people of God that he intended. And so Zechariah, like any kind of prophet or teacher or something, he takes a tack. And his tack is... He asked them to recall the disobedience of their ancestors. 
And then he calls them to live in accordance with the peaceful and prosperous existence that was promised them when they would be back into the restored city and the restored temple. So his tack is kind of history and future, that those two things would make kind of a pincher move on the presence and that it would help them kind of get with it and, and get with what God had called them to do. And this is the moment to say something that I, I, I'm not sure I've ever had a chance to say, that by the way, this is the power of eschatology. Eschatolo the eschaton is the last times. Eschatology is simply the study of the last things or the last times before the final consummation of all God's purposes. I know that can all seem really hard. I know there's a lot of opinions about it, you know, rapture, not, mid, trib, post. I mean, I get all that stuff can be very confusing and people can get tired of it. But I'm telling you, it is one of the most important doctrines in Christian history. The knowledge of where this is going is what's meant to zip up everything else in your life. Like, you're here today in a certain phase because the end game was coming to church. And so that future oriented your morning. Um, you could have been getting on a plane to go somewhere for work, right? That's fine. But that outcome would have created a whole different day for you. Are you feeling me here? And so it's this outcome, it's this knowledge of where this story's going that's meant to then take the various aspects of our lives and make them somehow coherent. Now, I just want you to think with me. If not that, what? What is going to give your life coherence? What is going to give you some sort of natural, intuitive, gut way of living the various aspects of your life? But here's the deal. Information, like Zechariah is giving, is rarely enough to change people's behavior. When our daughter, Carol Ann, was born, she's 23, I think, and so 23, 24, 25 years ago, I was a big boy. I mean, I was so big, my friends used to say, is that your belt or the equator? I mean, I was a big boy. <laughs> My friends used to call me your circumference. I mean, I, I, think I, weighed, I think I weighed at my height about 335 pounds, something like that. You can see pictures, you come over someday. And my mom, you know, being a mom, when she would see me, because I, I lived in Virginia at this time, when she'd see me, she'd say, Todd, you're like getting so big. And I'd go, oh, I hadn't noticed. You know how moms can be? I love my mom to death. But you know how moms can be? Like, telling me I was fat was not getting me anywhere. Like, I had the information, right? Every time I had to go to big and tall, right, I was reminded that I had the information. But information only works when there's a previously existing bent in your heart to head in that direction, if that's not there, information is almost always bankrupt. Now, there's a lot of reasons for nagging not to work, but there's one of them. Whether you're a nagging school teacher or a nagging spouse or whatever, this is why nagging is so bankrupt. Unless there's an intention, a previously existing intention in the heart to move in a certain direction, the information's worthless. It just falls on deaf ears, as we say. So 
Zechariah is trying to get them to move in this direction and is trying to give them a vision for creating in their renewed community back in the land a kind of the Lord is their reality. This is what the temple is. It's meant to give them a, a sense that, that God is here with us and to therefore create a place for the presence of God in their lives. And, and his basic message is, if you do this, God will fulfill his promises. Just begin to work with him. So now, you know, that being the case and, and just thinking of all the times that this happens in, you know, thousands and thousands of years of human history, hear these words of Jesus. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now listen to the logic here. I know you don't often think of Jesus as being logical, but I want you to hear the logic here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for, that is a very important logical connective. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that is a sort of classic thousands of years later up-to-date similar invitation to build a reality of God in your individual life, your community, and to do it in the knowledge that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let's take a moment this morning and, and ask ourselves on All Saints Day, how is it that, that saints are made? And I would want to say that they're made by first taking Jesus as their teacher. They then become the kinds of people who embody and express these values that we read about in the scripture this morning, these values of God. You might want to look at it. First, this is from our reading in Zechariah, administer true justice. That is to say, as you go through your life, will the good of others. It doesn't mean that you always have to win. Or secondly, show mercy and compassion to one another. And that is to say, let mercy and compassion govern all of your relationships. Third, don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Now, I think it's true. I didn't actually count this up. But it's, if it's not 100% true, it's largely true that the number one sin in the Old Testament that's condemned is the sin of oppression. It's just everywhere in the prophets to not oppress people. It may be the number one. And this is why, again, when you hear it updated in the New Testament, you hear James saying things like this, religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Because so much of human history is oppressing the marginalized. It's oppressing the weak for the sake of the powerful. And because this is so endemic to marriages and workplaces and friendships and communities, the, the, new, the, sorry, the Old Testament um, spoke against it, and the New Testament lifts up this vision more positively of pure and faultless religion is to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. And finally, Zechariah says, don't plot evil against each other, and that just simply means don't live your life trying to get revenge all the time. What's really underneath this in kind of the Hebrew idiom is don't live your life in a kind of um, pattern of vindictiveness where you're just always trying to get your way plotting evil against others. 
So then Zechariah, you can hear it in the text, one of the things he's getting after to move these people to create a place for God in their community was that they were focused on religious ritual and not really living daily, moment by moment, with God. So let's think about us. Why isn't this just ritual? Could absolutely be ritual. It's maybe the number one damned thing said about it. When people want to damn this, you're going to hear ritual or rote. So what makes it not be ritual? We're back to where we began. What do you intend? If you do not intend to confess your sins in a moment, it will be just ritual. If you do not in a moment in the creed really intend to say, this is my story, this is where I get my sense of myself, this is the story of the community of saints of which I'm a part, then yeah, it's just ritual. And it's not likely to have much impact at all. But if you intend in the prayers of the people to actually pray and mean from your heart that God would take care of the oppressed, and that that would become a pattern in your life, well, then this is not ritual, this is discipleship. This is follower of Jesus. It's all about what you intend. Keeping it real? Same thing is true in the big and loud churches with big and loud worship. I mean, I speak sometimes, when I'm not here on some Sunday mornings, it's not often that I'm speaking somewhere else, but usually I'm just doing bishopy stuff, but occasionally, I have to speak somewhere else for some reason. And not too long ago, I was standing on a stage with fog and spotlights and, you know, super loud music, blah, blah, blah. So look at me here, keeping it real. That's supposed to be cool. But let me tell you, that is as easily ritual as anything else. It is absolutely as easily ritual because ritual is not dependent on the activity. Ritual is dependent on what the people there intend. You can be singing a big, loud, cool song written by the latest, coolest, greatest worship leader. But if the words of that song do not match some intention of your heart, it's every bit as much ritual. So the fact that they were engaging in kind of fasting and, and certain types of offerings, but it wasn't touching their heart, God then calls them back, and again, you can see this in your text, to small common things, the, the everyday stuff of life, to their conversations and their businesses and their attitudes of mind and the values that they're carrying around in them that end up getting expressed in attitudes and actions. And so he says these very simple things, speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Don't plot evil against each other. Don't love to swear falsely. Keep your lives simple and honest. Now what we have to watch out for here in our discipleship is that these things cannot become a list of moral achievements. They're rather the outcome of a changed heart. Like think about it, the text says don't love to swear falsely. I was thinking yesterday, who loves to swear falsely? Like, you know, we might find ourselves doing it accidentally and not like it, but who loves to swear falsely? The one who has learned to manage life by doing so. 
the one who has learned that this is the most effective way for me to do business. After all, it's just business. Or this is the best way for me to get what I want with my spouse. Or this is the best way to manage my friendships. I've actually learned to love to swear falsely because it makes me feel secure. It makes me feel like I can manage life. And this is why these things can't just become moralisms because when they sit on that level, they don't touch that deeper intention. And to touch that deeper intention, we have to cry out like the psalmist, investigate my heart, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a really clear picture, God, of what I'm all about. Because I, I tend to love to swear falsely, but then I need you to guide me, the psalmist said, on the road to an eternal, a different kind of life, a life marked by the quality of eternity. That's what eternal life means. Eternal life is not about duration not about mere existence. Eternal life is a life that is now and will be forever, but has the quality of eternity to it. So Zechariah is precisely trying to get these people to see that their current approach to religion, their fastings and sacrifices, were leaving their actual lives untouched. And again, for me at least, this begs the question, why? How can people be doing religious things and it leaves their life untouched? And this, again, this, uh, uh, in my humble opinion, this is one of the most important things I've ever said to you. It's because religion, of whatever practice, always begs two questions. The first we've talked about, what do you intend? And the second one is, what do you plan to do about your intentions? If, if those two questions aren't constantly in our conscious mind, then religion is always empty. You have to have a plan to do something about your intentions. And so if someone says to me, well, well Todd, what should I plan? I'm likely to say something like this. Just begin to trust Jesus and follow his teachings. I don't know where anywhere else to begin better than that. I mean, do you? <laughs> Seriously, if, like if somebody says to me on an airplane or something, ask me some sort of question like that, I'll say, well, if you don't know what else to do, trust and follow Jesus. Place your confidence in him and in his teachings and just start to relate to him and try to follow his teachings. And then note when and why and how you fail, because you're gonna. And then in cooperation with the Spirit and in the context of the covenant, you know, unchanging love of God, just begin to do the things that will get at your heart issues. I mean, this is precisely what's happening in the gospel this morning in our feeding of the 4,000. This is Jesus. I mean, there's a lot more going on, but, but at least this is Jesus training the 12 who looked at him and said, well, what do you expect us to do? There's not a McDonald's around here. Seriously, this is what's happening. What do you expect us to do? Buy food out here in the desert? And what they're learning here is to share Jesus' outlook and compassion. I mean, am I the only one who is touched by this reading to see that Jesus um, is in tune with? These people have been with me three days and they've had nothing to eat or drink. That Jesus is in tune with that level of detail of the human life. 
And that it's out of compassion or pity, or you might call hospitality or generosity that Jesus is wanting to feed these people. Well, the 12 don't get it. They're not touched in their heart like Jesus is. To them, it's a pain in the butt. What, you want us to care for all these people? And Jesus is animated by something completely different. They're learning that the the resources of God are always available to them as they work with Jesus. To put it in language that we're familiar with, they're learning about both the journey inward and the journey outward and how they are constantly connected. And again, I know this is difficult. You know, there's sort of the, the, the really, you know, busy churches and really busy Christians who are always doing something for God and in God's name. And, and I get that there's been a, a, a typical and needed reaction against that. And, and in various aspects of formation or discipleship or whatever we want to call it, there's been a reaction to that. But I'm telling you, those two are connected. The one leads to a deepening of the other. There's no such thing as becoming more and more Christ-like without having his heart for, the, his heart for people who are just hungry and thirsty. And then as soon as, as soon as that comes to you, you're going to realize, oh, my heart is not very good. This is a pain in the rear to me. I don't actually care about that. Well, now you're back to formation. And these things just go round and round. This is why I love that um, language from Elizabeth O'Connor in the Church of the Savior, journey inward, journey outward. I mean, if you don't have that book, go buy that book. Maybe read it in Lent or something. And just get a vision for how this works together, actually. And not only that we don't have to choose, but actually we can't choose. They work together. So back to this business of making saints. This is a very famous comment from Dallas Willard. I don't know how many times he made it or in all the places he did make it. But I remember one time um, Dallas being asked the question, how does one begin to grow as a follower of God? And Dallas answered, do the next right thing you need to do. Well, that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Just do the next right thing you need to do. And he went on to say, and when you do that, you will see that you need help. And it's in that moment when you see you need help, please catch this. It's in that moment when you see you need help that intention will kick in or not. It's in that moment when you see you need help that you'll either reach out for a teacher or you won't. And Dallas knew that when somebody gets to that place and they reach out for God, that he and the resources of his kingdom will be there, just like for the 12. When they finally said, okay, we'll do what Jesus said, there they found the resources of the kingdom. That's when the bread started multiplying and the fish started multiplying. When they, when they faced that I don't get this and I don't really want to do this and this is dopey, how's this is going to work? So they found a teacher who said, here's what I want you to do. Just break them up. Give me the bread. Give me the fish. I'll pray for it. I'll bless it. You guys hand it out. See, it was in that moment when their intention kicked in to do what they were being asked to do. There, their life intersected with God and his kingdom. There, their life intersected with Jesus and a teacher. And I would want to say now, on the other hand, to maybe people in the room or you know, people listening to this who are afraid of spiritual disciplines, just stop it. You don't, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not drudgery. It's not punishment. It's not religious rigor for the sake of merit. 
The spiritual disciplines are simply the enabling of a dream. A dream that says, I want to enter into Jesus' yoke. Right? Picture two loops. I have a dream of entering his yoke. And I have a dream of experiencing what he said was true, that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And that as I came into his yoke, other people would experience my life as for their good. A how baggage, a billions of the other saints, that my life would be experienced by my spouse and friends and family and coworkers as for their good. I see that vision. I, I, I intend to follow that vision. The disciplines are just the way that we do that. It's enabling. That's what, that's what disciplines are. But unless you have the dream or the intention, the enabling just sort of sits on the shelf. It's just trying to enter into this dream we have. As it's been famously put, it's training instead of moral trying. Moral trying is not only bankrupt, it's frustrating. But you can train yourself. But see, worldly wisdom says, if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, and try again, right? You've heard that? It's actually not very helpful. No, this is how it actually works in discipleship to Jesus. If at first you don't succeed, let's say you take, you, someone takes me up on my offer. I say, just put your confidence in Jesus and start to follow him. So they pick up their Bible and they read, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Classic Jesus saying, right? So they start to do it and they fail. So then you take Jesus as your master, your teacher, and look at me, you come to understand what went wrong. You have to have Jesus teach you and train you about what love is and why it's good. Look at me, hundreds of millions, if not billions of Christians aren't even, I mean, sorry, human beings aren't even convinced that love is good. It feels weak to them, vulnerable. I might get trampled. What if I lose? Well, no wonder they can't love their neighbor. They're not even convinced it's good. Well, who's gonna teach you that it's good? Jesus, if you disciple, if you disciple yourself to him, He'll show you what love is, why it's good, and how it works. Then go try again. Maybe having come to the understanding that I don't love well because I have this essential thing in me that's, that's overly vulnerable and I can't do it. Okay, I get it. Most of us are there. But unless you're dealing with that, loving will just be religious ritual at best, like the kind of fastings or offerings that Zechariah was condemning. So it's not, if first you don't succeed, try, try, and try again. It's no, if at first you don't succeed, then take Jesus as your master. Come to understand what's going on in you, letting Jesus train you, and then try again, and then just keep at it, and little by little, your soul will take on a different shape. So I want to invite you now to a quiet moment and invite you to place this question before your mind. If you're really keeping it real, you know, without any self-judgment or any fear, what are your truest, most honest intentions about life and God?
Like, what if just for a moment you made yourself aware of what it is you really want? You might think of hopes or dreams. And to the degree that those things might involve following Jesus, then again hear him say, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then if you have that in your mind, maybe next you could ask, what's the next right thing I need to do? And maybe picture yourself doing it. And picture God and the resources of his kingdom meeting you there, just like he did with the twelve. The next right thing I need to do, picture yourself doing it, and picture God and the resources of his kingdom meeting you there.